This book is concerned with life as it is now lived under the sun. It is not a book that tells us the way to go to heaven. It tells us how to live now and to walk now with God in our life. Now, we've already studied the first portion of this book. It has to do with, the, with Solomon's search for the path of life under the sun. And then in beginning in chapter 3, he takes us into the second great message, and that is concerning God's control of our life here under the sun, taking and giving us the pieces of our life and putting them together for us. That's what this message is all about, beginning with the third chapter. We had a very interesting weekend. I'd like to share a moment with you. We were up at the men's retreat, the men from the various churches throughout the Fellowship of Brethren Churches here in Southern California met up in, I forget the name of the place, I think it's Clear Lake in uh, the mountains, and we had a, a wonderful time. I was able to be there with them yesterday, preached uh, three times, and I was in my seventh heaven. That's a wonderful chance to go and preach for three times. And uh, we had a wonderful time. There was one man especially that I want you to pray for, a man who is from Ireland. And we've been able to share with him, but he does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Savior for a surety. We need to pray very much for him. Will you do that? He was able to be with us, brought there by a friend for that day. Will you, you pray for him? Pray for the men. We had an interesting trip back. We left last night after dark, and we got about 15 minutes on the road, and we ran into fog. And for the next hour and a half, we had fog. And uh, it was almost impossible to see. I was very fortunate. There was a fellow in a Cadillac that was on the same road, and he was riding in front of me. And I couldn't see where to go. All I did was follow his lights. If he went down over the thing, I would have gone right on after him. <laughs> we would not have known where to go at all. And as you know, as... As I was driving along, I got to thinking about it, uh, how wonderful it is to follow the Lord Jesus the same way, you know? Now, unfortunately, I couldn't trust that man too well because I knew he didn't see much better than I did, nor as well, see? But I know the Lord Jesus knows everything, and we can follow him with perfect confidence in our hearts, and that's the way we're to live this life of ours here on this earth under the sun. And one of the things that the Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us here, by the way, somebody asked me, uh, what's this word that I'm using? The Kohelet. Sometimes I say Kohelet. Uh, I'm told by the Hebrewists the correct way to say it is the Kohelet. Well, that's simply the, the Hebrew word for this book. It's the word for the preacher. That's all it means. And if I slip it in now and then, you'll forgive me and uh, just pray for me about it. <laughs> but that's all we're talking about is the preacher. And the, the man Solomon who wrote, whom God used to write this book. You know, in, in the first part, he gave us the fact that God is in control of our life. And then in the second message of this book, he pointed out to us that there are certain contradictions. Certain contradictions, that's th those certain things, certain events that take on the earth, place on the earth that seem to contradict this idea that God is in control of life. And we've been studying those the last two Sundays and have noticed that instead of contradicting the viewpoint 
that God is in control of life on, under the sun, but demonstrates the way and the manner and the power with which he controls our lives here on this earth. Now, beginning with the fifth chapter, we come to his third point. He's talking on the same subject, God's sovereign control of life under the sun. But now he wants to talk to us about our relationship to this God. You know, people reply, people respond to this doctrine in three different ways. When you go and tell somebody that God has set our times on the earth, God has chosen the pieces and given us those pieces, and he puts those pieces together for us in our life here on this earth. This is done, and this is all in the hands of a personal loving God who is concerned about us. When people hear this, they react in three different ways. One, the natural man says it ain't so. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or if he comes from an other than Western culture, he may say, well, everything's in the hands of fate. If it's my kismet, I'll do this, and so I can't do anything about it, so I'll eat, drink, and be merry, and, and whatever fate brings to me, that's what's going to happen. This is the natural man's response to this whole thing. The spiritual man's response to this matter is to say, praise God. Hallelujah to know that he is in control of my life, that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Praise God for that wonderful fact. But there's a third response, and it's a response we hear all too often, and that is, what can I do to get God to do what I want him to do? God's in control of things. Great, wonderful. Praise God he's in control of things. Now, how can I manipulate him so that he'll do what I want done? You ever hear that? Oh, people don't say it in those bold terms, do they? But you know, that's the, that's the main idea behind the whole rigmarole of religion as we see it today. See, we go to church on Sunday hoping that God will help me putt better on Thursday. Lord, I've gone and listened to that long-winded, dry fellow. Now, I certainly should receive some benefits from it. <laughs> See? Or we go through certain ceremonies, and we have them. All religions have them. They have their ceremonies which they follow, and they think that by means of these ceremonies, they are going to get God on their side. Or we give gifts. Or we say certain prayers, hoping that by this means we can persuade God to get behind us and bless us and help us and make things go better for us. Now may I say to you that that is exactly the thing that the Koheleth in this book is talking about in the fifth chapter. He points out to us the utter folly of such a concept. And he has a message for us. And that's the message. Caution. 
God working here. God is in heaven. You're on the earth. Now, God is also on the earth. His point is that God is supreme and in control. And you and I are but his subjects. And he is the one who's in charge. And he is the one that's moving. And it's not our business to try to manipulate him because he cannot be manipulated. He is God, and he is working. Now, cautious, take caution when you face this fact that God is working. And the first thing he points out, beginning to us right there in, in, in the first chapter, in the fifth chapter here, in the first seven verses is be cautious as to how you approach God. Look at it. Read the text along with me, will you please? Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. That's the first thing he says. Be cautious when you present yourself to God. Now, let's understand something. God wants us to present ourselves to him. There's a great truth. It's stated over in the book of Acts, chapter 17. All of us, we move, every move we make. We move and we have our being, every bit of our personality. We move and we have our being in him. God is everywhere. God, this, this is not the house in which God dwells. Want to know something? When we leave here, in a very real sense, he also does. Now that we're here, he's here. But during the week when this building is empty, God is not especially here no more than he's any other place, because God is everywhere. But God wants us, God wants us to take time, not one time or two times, but many times off during the day to relate to him. You know, one of the things that is, that is so precious to me is that I'll be riding along in the car and driving there and I'll sort of let my hand drop to the seat. Pretty soon I'll feel my wife's hand upon me. She's there. She's in the car. She's been there. She just wants me to know she's there. How many times we're in the store and there's so many people around? Say, reach out and just take her hand. Say, we're communicating. We're together. Now, we're always with God. 
But God wants us ever so often to reach out and touch him, to approach him. You know, there's a, there's a verse that thrills my heart over in the book of John. Will you turn there, please? John chapter 4. You know, when I first read this verse and understood it a little bit, it brought tears to my heart, tears to my eyes, because of a very precious thought here. Look at it. Verse 23 of John chapter 4. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now listen to that, and listen with ears, will you? For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Can you imagine that? That God, the creator of heaven and earth, seeks my attention that God, the creator in heaven and earth, as I am walking through a crowded store, he will be the one who will reach out his hand to take mine, to let me know he's there, and he wants me to know he's there, and he wants me to turn and look at him and relate to him in the midst of people. That's a fact. We're always in the presence of God. But God wants us to be conscious of that presence, and God wants us to reach out and touch him. But he has to tell us something. Look at the verse, that first verse again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Guard your steps. Guard your steps. Do you know that King James says it, keep your foot. Literally, it's that. Keep your foot. To put it down into the kind of English you and I use every day, it means watch your step. When you turn to relate to God, watch your step. He is God. Watch your step. Then he adds something. He says, draw near to listen. You see that verse? Look at it very carefully again, will you please? Draw near to listen. Oh, how many times we draw near to God simply because we have something to tell him that we think he's forgotten. After all, he's an old man and a little bit senile and doesn't remember everything, see? And we have to run and remind him. And we are very much, we're anxious to tell him. And we run into his presence and say, hey, God, listen. And he says, hey, watch your step. Draw near to listen. You see, God is the major acting. Caution, God working, not you, not me. He's working. 
He has something he's doing. He's very active. He has all the pieces. He has all these pieces, and he's putting them together, and he's controlling them, everyone. He is working. Now, listen, don't go and tell him what to do. Listen to what he's doing, and then go along with him and what he's doing. Draw near to listen, recognizing that you are entering into a very special relationship with a very special person. He is asking us now to, to draw near and listen to him. We face a need in our lives, and we're conscious of it. We face a responsibility that we're charged with, and it's heavy on our hearts. What is God doing about it? Well, remember, God knows all about it. He knows you have need before you ask him. Now he says, draw near. And let me tell you, let me fellowship with you. Let me lead you. Let me direct you. Tell him what's on your heart. But don't be hastening to tell him. After telling him what is on his heart, let him guide and direct. He knows what it's all about. Let him be in charge. We ought to realize, listen, how many times we come to God with our little gifts, our little sacrifices, and we offer them to God. And we expect God to do something because of our gifts, because of our sacrifices. And God said, that isn't the way at all. This brings a problem to us, doesn't it? Because after all, in the Old Testament, who was the one, who was the one who taught Moses about the sacrifices and the offerings? Huh? It was God. God who told the people that when they would come to his temple that they were to bring their sacrifices. They were to bring their offerings. And so these people are coming with their sacrifices and offerings. And now he says to them, he says, wait a minute. When you approach God, watch your step. See? Rather than to offer sacrifices of fools that they do not know that they are doing. Why did God ask for the sacrifices? And now the Koalith is telling him, when you're coming into the presence of God, God doesn't want your sacrifice. Because those Old Testament sacrifices were not given to the people. The instructions concerning those sacrifices were not given to the people that the people might use these as a bribe to get God's attention. Not at all. Those Old Testament sacrifices were promises that God gave to the people of the sacrifice that he was going to supply for the sins of men. That's what they were. And when they brought these sacrifices, they were not as bribes to get God's attention. They were promises that God had given to them that he was going to supply the Lamb of God who would someday come and take away the sin of the world in his own blood and open up, tear the veil away from between man and God and open up the way for man to come into the very presence of God without the help of any priest, but come there with the power of the blood of Christ alone. And he's reminding us here 
Coalith, he says, look at our little sacrifices are not, we don't use these to approach God. God has offered this sacrifice, and that sacrifice is there for us. And now through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, you and I have full and complete access in the presence of God. And when we come into the presence of God, it is not to offer sacrifices. And to think that we can bribe God one of the ways in which this is done is happens so often. You find it, you run into it so often. There are men and women, and they have their hands gripped around a certain sinful practice that they're involved in. And they know that it's not the will of God. They know this is not what God wants them to be doing. And they have this sin, and it's in their lives, and it's there, and they love it, and they're hugging it, and they're practicing it. And when you go and say something to them, and you say, Brother, this is not right. Oh, they say, Oh, yes, but God loves me. And when I sin this sin, I simply go to him, and I confess my sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so after I sin, I go and I ask God, and he forgives me. Then I go right back to my sin, and I sin it again, and then I go to ask God, and he forgives me. Hogwash. I want to tell you, dear brother, let me tell you this, that this is not God's, what, God's way. This is what he has heard. Not, he's just talking against this right now. Oh, I want to tell you, that the precious fountain of blood flowing from the veins of Emmanuel is there for cleansing. And if your heart is heavy with sin, and that sin is black and dark and miserable in your eyes because it is wrong in the eyes of God and you know it, and you don't want anything to do with it, and you repent of it, you feel enslaved to it, and you want freedom from it, praise God, all you have to do is go to him and confess that sin, and he'll wash you in the fountain filled with blood, and you're cleansed in his eyes, and you can go on in his presence. Hallelujah for this wonderful way in which he has provided for us to come to him. But if while he's washing you, you can think you can hang on to that sin, you've got another guest coming. I want to tell you, dear friend, there's no way that you can possibly do this in the ways of God. And that's what he's telling you. Don't think you can bring your sacrifice and get by with it. Watch your step. He is God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have full access to him. You can reach out at any time and take his hand. He was ready and available, but not on the basis of your silly sacrifices that you offer to him. Not on those. And he moves on then, and he cautions us also that we need to be, cautious, we need to be careful how we pray. Look at verse 2 and 3. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the work of a fool through many words. Now, that last verse is a proverb there. You're really 
struggling and fussing about many things during the day. At night, you're restless with your dreams. And if you yak a lot, you say a lot of foolish things. That's what he's saying. He's talking now when you come into his presence. He says, not only watch your step, Watch your words. Watch your words. The King James puts it, Do not be rash with thy mouth, and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Simply translated, watch your mouth when you come into the presence of God. Jesus told us this, didn't he? Turn over with me to the book of Matthew and the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. And look at those very familiar words, but do not let the familiarity of these words rob us of the truth of the words. Look at Matthew chapter 6 and at verse 5. Look at it. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, here it is. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, Pray to your Father who is in heaven in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. But how are you to pray? The next verse. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. When you go into the presence of God and you get down to pray to God, you don't have to make a long speech about it. A young man was at a conference, a young pastor, and Dr. Torrey was one of the speakers, and as he was standing there talking with Dr. Torrey, Dr. Torrey asked him, he said, this evening, he said, would you join me, please, in my room for prayer? I have a very important decision that I must make tonight, and I would appreciate it if you would come and you would help me in prayer this evening. And this young pastor was thrilled, as anyone would be, to be asked to meet in prayer with Dr. Torrey. And he went to his wife and he said, Honey, he said, I'll take you back to the hotel room and then I'll leave you. And I'll more than likely be in an all-night prayer meeting with Dr. Torrey. He has a very heavy decision that he wants to make and he's asked me to meet with him in prayer. So he came to the room and there with two or three or four other gentlemen and Dr. Torrey, he met and they got on their knees. One of the men prayed, the second man prayed, then this young man decided that it was his time to pray. And he prayed. Well, he had prayed about everything you could think of. After all, it was going to be an all-night prayer meeting. 
Now, how do you have an all-night prayer meeting in one sentence? You know, it's got to take a long time. Uh, boy, he went on, and he went on. And he prayed. You know, he prayed for the missionaries in China and those on the, the other side of the ocean and, and all of the friends and all of the people, and especially for Dr. Torrey and Dr. Torrey's health and Dr. Torrey's wealth and Dr. Torrey's wife. And he, he, you know, he prayed for the whole thing. He went on and on as much as he could. But, you know, at the end of it, he only had gone six minutes. He finally had to say, uh, Lord, I don't have anything more to say. And more likely into that young man's mind was, how are we going to spend the rest of this night? One of the other men spoke, prayed rather, and then Dr. Torrey prayed. In five simple sentences, he told God the thing that he was facing. He asked God to show him how he, God, wanted the situation solved. And then he said, in Jesus' name, amen. And to the amazement of that young man, this great warrior of prayer got up from his knees and the others got from their knees. He shook each hand and said, thank you, good night. And the young man went back to his wife. See, so many of us think that prayer is going before God and we have to choose the flowery words and the correct way of saying it and expressing it and this is what prayer is all about. When God says, make it brief, will you please? <laughs> In the first place, he knows all that you need. Now listen, don't misunderstand something here. Don't misunderstand. God is interested in what you're feeling. God is interested in what you had to say. And if you want to make it long-winded and it's sincere from your heart, God will stay right there and listen to you. He wants you to speak. He wants you to bur take the burden off your heart. He wants you to explain what you understand about things. He's not rude. He doesn't put you down and say, your opinion of this matter isn't any value to me, and what you think about it or how you see it doesn't mean anything. He doesn't put you down. God wants us to come and to speak, but he's trying to tell us something. He says, look it, you don't need to have all these special words, and you don't need to know how to express it correctly. So many people are afraid to go to God and pray because they say, I don't know whether I know how to say it right. And God is trying to say to you, I don't worry whether you say it right or not. I can read your heart. I know what you mean. And what's more, I know all about it. And I've known about it from the beginning of time. And I'm here and I'm with you and you're with me and I'm working at it, and I want to answer your prayer. There was a little Chinese girl working in the home of John Stan in China. And this little Chinese girl, something came into her family, into her life, that threatened to be a great tragedy. And she came and she spoke to Mrs. Stam. And you know, the Stams were later martyred for Christ in China. And she spoke to Mrs. Stam and she said, Madam, can I please leave my work? I have a burden that I must pray about. And Madam Stam said, Why, certainly. And the little Chinese girl went out, went over to her little room, 
She didn't even close the door so Mrs. Stam could hear her. She got down on her knees, and very simply she said, Lord, I have this problem. Now it's your chance. Did you get it? Lord, I have this problem. Now it's your chance. In Jesus' name, amen. That is prayer. That is prayer. That is letting God work. Not a lot of words. It's a recognition of the sovereignty of God. It's recognition that God is in heaven and that God is on earth down here with us. Prayer is fellowship with him. Prayer is finding out what he is doing and say, Lord, go do it. That's the great thing about prayer. And you can bring any burden, any problem, and you can say it to him any way you want to, and God will listen. But don't think that you have the final word on the matter. There's a phrase you'll hear very often repeated among preachers. It's quoted about a certain situation in the Old Testament where God to the Old Testament people, he said, command me concerning the works of my hands. And there are people, there are preachers that have taken that completely out of context. And they've said to us that you and I in prayer are now to command God to do what we want him to do. And I want to tell you that's blasphemous. That's not a lack of faith. To, be, to, to, to run away. They tell you if you don't believe this and don't follow what they tell you, that you don't have faith. Hogwash. Let me tell you something. God is God. He knows all about it. And he says, don't be loud-mouthed. Don't be talking a lot when you come into my presence. Come and just share your burden with me, knowing that I'm at work and I'll fulfill my promises. I'll fulfill my promises. I was one time having a great deal of difficulty knowing how to pray. I would get down on my knees and I would try to figure out what should I pray about and what should I do. And a dear friend of mine said, Harold, what you do is just open your Bible and begin to read. And as the promises of God's Word fill your mind you'll find more than enough to pray about. And it's so preciously true. You see, God is working. He doesn't want us to tell him what to do. He wants us to tell him about what we're in, and he will comfort and fill and fulfill his promises and go on doing the great work he's planned in our lives. And we can have the comfort of his hand on ours and the joy of his presence in our lives. And then he says something else, you notice. It's a very important statement there in that fifth chapter and beginning with the fourth verse. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. 
it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? What's he saying there? Well, you've got to remember something. That God in his commandments to men has never commanded men to make vows. I do not know of any command in Scripture any time when God in Scripture commands people to make vows. Vows are voluntary offers of service to God. They're not something that God commands of us. They are something that we offer voluntarily to God. Now, the point is this that when we volunteer, when we make a vow, we must pay that vow. Now, when his messenger comes, and it's very interesting, that word messenger here, some believe it to be the priest. They picture that what it is is that, the, that Solomon is telling the people that when they have offered, when they have made a vow, that they would make a certain payment of money to the temple. And then the day came to pay the money, and the priest would come to them to collect the money. They are not at that time to say to this messenger of God, uh, it was a mistake that I made back there when I made this vow. I don't think that this messenger here particularly is that priest. I think God has many, many, many messengers that come to us. When you make a voluntary, or voluntary offer to God, then listen to me. God brings his messengers in various and sundry ways to you and reminds you that you are to pay that vow. It may not be nothing more than a good memory. That good memory of yours may be that messenger, and it reminds you, say, you promised this, you said you would do this, now it's time to do it. And you said, what he's saying to you is that you cannot say at that time, hey, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. Well, you must, you and I must realize that when we are dealing with God, we're dealing with God. Not a man on the earth, but the Lord God Almighty, our loving, gracious, heavenly Father. And he says, watch your step. Watch your mouth. Watch out about what you promise to God. And then then seventh verse, there's, a, there's an interesting challenge given there. He sums it up. He says, for in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. And that's so true. How many times we have dreams and after we get up in the morning and we say, what was all of that about? And we don't remember anything. It was just zero, you know, blah, empty. And if we do happen to recall it, we scratch our head and say, what could it possibly be? See, he says it's also that way with a lot of our talk. We yak, 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 and when it's all done, what does it mean? Now he says, rather, in place of this business of coming into the presence of God with a lot of talk, 
fear God. Now, he doesn't mean to be afraid of God. I had an electrician working in my house one time, and I was very interested in walking, watching this man work. He was very cautious. He did everything precisely. I said to him, I said, you, you, you're a, you, you move very uh, slowly, very precisely, very cautiously. He looked up at me and he says, I'm dealing with electricity. I said, so? He said, young man, electricity can kill you. Boom. It goes, he said, electricity goes according to certain laws. Violate those laws and you can be splattered on the next wall. Now, that man was not afraid of electricity. But he feared electricity. And therefore, he treated it carefully. You know, we live in an age when people seem to think, they even refer to the old man upstairs and other kinds of expressions about God. And they fail to realize that God is God. And when we have any dealings with God, we need to remember he's God. Yes, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. We don't even understand how he loves us, but he is God. And we need to treat him with the fullest possible respect. The next thing he has to say to us is there in that eighth chapter, in that eighth verse, he says, and if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the provinces, do not be shocked at the sight of one official working over other officials. And there are a, there's a higher official over them. For all, all, after all, he says, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He's saying to us, be cautious as you respond to problems that come in to your heart and into your life. Be cautious. You see injustice around you. You see crime and you see criminals getting away with it. And you see trusted officials getting away with crime. And you become disgusted and you become upset and you become angry, he says. Be cautious. Remember the psalmist crying out, in Psalm 37, 1, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Why not? For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Do not be shocked when you see on every side of you injustice and evil and you think, therefore, that God is out of control. Do not be shocked with this. Then he says something. He says, you notice in the human affairs 
there's one official on one level and then there's another official who has charge of that first official. And he watches over that official. And then on top of this second official, there's another guy that watches him. And where is the final watcher? Huh? God. And he says, if the first watcher doesn't catch the crook, and if the second watcher doesn't catch the crook, and if the third watcher doesn't catch the crook, and if the president doesn't catch the crook, God will catch him. God keeps good books, and no one ever tampers with God's books. He has the record, and he has it straight. And he says, do not be shocked with this. Paul, you know, Peter said, don't, don't be surprised. Don't be set on edge when, when trials come into your life as over some strange thing. God has, some, God has all the pieces, and God puts the pieces, and some of these pieces are pieces that have involved with suffering. Some of these pieces are pieces that are involved with injustice. Some of these pieces are pieces that are hard things, but God knows about them. He brings them into place. He's putting them there. He has them fully under control. And don't forget that he keeps the books accurately. And then will you notice, please, he says a very important and precious thing in that ninth verse. It's a proverb, and like many proverbs, we, we look at it and we try to read it literally. But look at it, what it really is saying. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now, he's not saying there that if President Rager was a farmer, he'd be of greater advantage to the land. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is the king who takes care of his kingdom and rules and controls his kingdom is of great advantage to the land. And the big thought behind it all is that God is the king and we are the land, and he is cultivating his land, and he's in charge of that cultivation. He is planting. He is watering. He is guiding the weather. He is causing the crop to grow. He is in control. Hallelujah. Do you know that? Has God reached out? And has God taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of his dear son? Have you heard the message that Jesus died for you and put away all of your sin, that God loves you and wants to receive you? And have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you believed in him so that he has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness? And has he put you into the kingdom of his dear son? And are you in the kingdom that he is cultivating now? Are you there? Then don't be shocked at what goes on around about you. Don't be shocked. Do rest secure now in the hands of the king who is cultivating the land. And he's cultivating you. And he's taking care of you. And he's helping you. 
and he's working all the pieces of your life together. He is in control. Praise God, we have a king who cultivates the land and is good for the land. But do you know him? Is he your God? Have you by personal choice accepted him as your God so that you are out of the kingdom of darkness and are now in the kingdom of his dear son? If not, we ask you to believe in Jesus Christ.